Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Road to Recovery podcast. This podcast is a platform for education, discussion, and conversations on mental health. I'm your host, Amira Shah, and in this podcast, you'll get to know more about the therapeutic process, insight into life from the perspective of the psyche, and also join me in exploring current issues with other practitioners. I specialize in grief, but I'm always interested in learning about the human experience of the mind, heart, and spirit. So join me on this journey of in-depth learning about ourselves and the world we live in. Welcome back to Science of the Soul. So today I have with me a biblical counselor, um, Padre Chris Perona. He is a private practitioner. He practices at Foundations Counseling Center here in Brisbane, and he sees clients online and face-to-face. Hi, Chris. How are you today? Hi, Mira. Very good. Thanks. Very excited to be part of this podcast. Yeah, thank you for doing this. Um, We talked a little bit before we started recording about the things we can talk about and a little bit on psychotherapy, um, a little bit about um, grief, emotions, motivations, and Hebrew. So um, I don't know what will happen now while we speak, but can you tell us a little bit about your work and what it means to be a biblical counselor. Sure. I think a biblical counselor is someone that essentially works with the frameworks that come from the Bible. So I believe that I do believe in God and, and I believe that what we're taught from the Bible is that we're fundamentally created to live in a number of relationships with God, with each other, and with the world. Mm. And it is possible to live independently of God in terms of, even though he may have made some aspects of how he would like us to live very clear, people can choose not to live that way. And I think a lot of people come into come to struggle when they try and replace God with things that he made or aspects of creation that he has made. So we're meant to enjoy creation and aspects of our lives in harmony with God, not separately from God. So once we remove God from our, like one of our primary ways of thinking or our focus, and we make our life all about perhaps even good things like our marriage or our friends or our career, if that is our whole life, it's, it's missing our relationship with God. And that creates a dissonance or a tension. There's, there's, there can develop an emptiness or an agitation within us because I think that we are created to live in harmony with God, with each other, 
and with creation. And so as a biblical counsellor, I help people. Usually people come with something's broken in their lives. There's an aspect of their lives which is not working. And part of, the, part of my pastoral, like as a shepherd, with, with a, a sheep as it's, you know, using that metaphor, I try and um, walk along and with that person to help them explore how is that broken part connected to their relationship with God, mm-hmm. with, with their neighbour, with other people and the world. So it's a much more holistic approach rather than just focusing on what's broken we begin to use that maybe as a beginning point and then look at their whole relationship and their whole spirituality and also like physical their body as well and all aspects of their lives but from the framework of god each other world Mm. so this is your own personal framework in your mind when you're confronted, not confronted, presented with a client's case. Yeah, that's right. So part of, so I I am a Presbyterian minister and I've had 15 years of uh, experience in, in the church as a minister. And part of my, part of my ministry was to do biblical counseling training. I didn't get that. Um, Biblical counseling training. (laughs) <laughs> Siri, she's <laughs> going to uh, come into this apparently. Um, so I did biblical counselling as uh, with the with an organisation called Christian Counselling Education Foundation, which is in America, mm. and I also received direct supervision with uh, one a, a couple of their staff members. So I practice biblical counselling as a Presbyterian minister with people in my parish. Um, and received supervision during that time, just as psychologists receive uh, supervision. So, so I've had both uh, post-grad master's level training in biblical, biblical counselling, so how to think in those frameworks that I've already described and also receive supervision. That's so cool. How long did it take you to complete your training? Well, I- I haven't completed it at all. So I've done the first two certificates. Okay. Uh, so each subject goes for one semester and typically it's about 10 contact hours at least plus reading. So it's a big commitment that was really hard to do while being a full-time minister. So I've done it over a really long, over that 15-year period, I've chipped away and I've done the first two, first two certificates of three. So I have one more to go. Mm. Wow. So what led you to this role? Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, so growing, yeah, great <laughs> question. I'm going to have to do a little bit of family history now. <laughs> so, um, so my mom's uh, a practicing Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. and my parents got divorced when when I was in primary school and that had a pretty significant impact on me uh, growing up in a in a very negative way I became a very toxic person mm-hmm. and I really lost my way and there was a I met a friend in year 11 at high school who uh, was a Christian and I gave him a real hard time because I didn't like God because I I thought God had really messed up my life so I was pretty angry 
And one day he challenged me to, if I was looking for the truth, read the Gospel of John in the New Testament. And so when I read the Gospel of John in the New Testament, I realized that Jesus, like, he was he was really different to how I expected. I thought, I thought church was just for middle-class Christians um, <laughs> that had their lives all together, not, not for street kids that were getting in trouble by the police, you know, like blue light disco and all sorts of terrible things, but I won't go into that. Um, and so I realized that, yeah, like Jesus wasn't some sort of, I used I used to refer. I remember going to church, and when I first started going to church, I still swore and everything. Oh, it was really funny. And I referred, I gave my testimony. I said, "Oh, Jesus is a really cool, dude." And half the church people nearly fell out of the pews. But um, yeah. <laughs> so, but that hasn't changed. I'm still the same person. So, um, I just felt that Jesus approached the disenfranchised, the, the people that were just rejected, the lowest of the lows, that's what really captured me about Jesus was that he genuinely loved and careful and approached people, you know, like the untouchables, literally like the lepers, and he would embrace them. Mm. The immoral woman who washed his feet with her tears uh, and dried and dried them with her hair and just his compassion for her. And he says, like, your sins are forgiven and everyone else is outraged that mm. he's doing that. And, um, and I realised, wow. I, I, and so one day in a bus, I was thinking, Jesus, I've stuffed my life up. I've lived it my way. And, and so I want you to be in charge from now on. So, and then I just started to try to read the Bible, like read the Bible and be a, a disciple of Christ is someone who essentially just, what does Jesus teach? And how do I, how do I live according to his teaching? And how do I, how can I be more like Jesus in my own life? And it's really hard, but he does help. And he does, he, he has helped me grow into uh, who I am now um so this is turning into a very long answer so i dedicate i wanted to dedicate my life to jesus as a disciple and then i decided well i'll do a bachelor of theology and then decide where i go from there oh sweet so i did nursing uh state enrolled nursing for a year and worked a bit and then did my bdh and then I finished that in my early 20s and then decided that I wasn't mature enough to be a church minister. So I did nursing for nine more years and then became a Presbyterian minister. So you're a nurse? Yeah, so I've done state enrolled nursing. Yeah, that's right. Wow. I didn't expect that. But, <laughs> Just... Well, you know why? One of the main reasons why I did nursing was I was a terrible person. Yeah, I was really horrible, really obnoxious. Like, my Christian friend said to me later on that he had to pray to Jesus to help him love me. I was that bad. <laughs> I was really bad. And uh, I thought if I do nursing, maybe I'll actually be taught how to be compassionate towards people. <laughs> That's how bad I was. Wow. So it sounded like you grew up and you were quite disconnected from empathy and compassion. And then... Correct. You tried to learn that 
and by throwing yourself into the deep end by being a nurse. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly, that was my thinking. Mm. That's serious dedication. Because seriously, nursing's really hard because mm. you're, you're, you're looking after people who are at their lowest and most vulnerable time in their life where essentially all their choice and like they're in crisis essentially because mm. um, they're in hospital and mm. they can't sleep when they want, they can't eat when they want, they can't go where they want. Like, and, and a lot of the things that are happen, happening to their body medically, like procedures and things, they've got no choice over either. So it, it can bring out the best and the worst in people. And so I thought if I can learn to look after people who their circumstances might be bringing out their worst in them, which is directed at me because I'm the closest person that's looking mm-hmm. after them, then maybe I'll get to practice and become a better person. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really awesome. So you were a nurse for nine years and then um, you went... Well, actually, (laughs) sorry. So I was a nurse for five years and then I got out and went into advertising. Oh, what did you advertise? Yeah, as a grad... So I I became... I did an office admin course and got into graphic arts. And I ended up in this, like, big George Patterson Bates or some, like, the biggest advertising company in the southern hemisphere where we had we used to have anset brushes it's not a very good omen all of them are gone (laughs) but um yeah really big clients I hated it it was so corporate and I didn't fit in but yeah so yeah I was in advertising for about five years Mm. sounds like you've had a few lives I do yes I like (laughs) a challenge (laughs) And how did you become a minister then? Yeah, so after my five years of, so I did my BDH while I was a nurse and then went back to nursing, got out of nursing, got into advertising. So there's that nine-year gap from when I finished my BDH to, and then I had to start the process of becoming a minister. So, yes, that that was a hard, I didn't really actually want to become a minister. God made me do it. So in that nine year, so in that nine year, (laughs) in that no, in that nine year period, all these people kept saying, "Oh, have you thought about going into the ministry?" And I'd be like, "Yes, but no, I don't really want to," because I didn't ever think that I would fit or Mm. be a very good minister just because of my character and disposition. I'm a nonconformist by nature, and I don't really like traditions and. But yeah, I just I just felt that God was really calling me to become a minister. And as a disciple of Christ, I kind of was I had a lot of people saying I would make a good minister and I should think about going into it. And and I came to that conviction myself and did become a minister. And mm. yeah, that all my fears came true and um I pretty much made a mess of my first uh, church and on reflection I would say that fundamentally where I went wrong was I tried to be too strong and I tried to be I tried to I really wanted to succeed as a minister and you know just as a person um and so I think I tried too hard mm. 
and I didn't allow myself to be um, kind of vulnerable and open to being corrected or so it, I was quite arrogant really mm. and it was I was very hard on my first church which at the time it, they seemed to be the problem but I recognize now that yeah I was as much the problem as they were so it was a very difficult time mm. how'd you come back from that Uh, I think, I think, uh, it took, it took time. I had mentors who were supportive. I came up here, um, to a church, Presbyterian church here in the gut. And I was there for 10 years. And I think that was very positive ministry. And, and they gave me space to recover and find my feet, uh, both for me and my family. And it just, it took a lot of time and it took a lot of grieving, I think, and, and self-reflection and being a bit more honest with myself about where I'd gone wrong mm. um, and how, how I'd been hard on that first, first church. Mm. Mm. So you had the opportunity to do some soul searching and um, professional development in this Perth at the Gap. And how did you end up being a biblical counselor? Like, how does it, how different is the role? Mm -hmm. So, so I, I started biblical counseling way back right from the beginning. Mm. Um, so, so for me, it might sound really weird. And I don't know how many people listening to this podcast will find it interesting. But I think that for me, the way, like when I write and preach a sermon, the way that I think about that is it's like counselling to the collective. And when I talk to someone in a counselling centre, like one-on-one, I think of it as preaching to the one. Because for me, counselling and preaching and pastoral care is all the same thing. It's essentially applying the lesson of the Bible or a particular text in the Bible to a person's life. Yeah. So it's it's just, so another way of describing the same thing is how can I help this person uh, walk with Christ or be able to follow Christ in a clearer, practical way? So what does life with Christ look like? What what difference will Christ make in this person's situation? And, and how will that play out differently? How will that change or help that person be a better person, essentially? So people that come to you are Christians, typically. Uh, I find that, yeah, so, okay, so I find that people who come to Foundations Counselling Centre, which is, which is through which I, I practice, I find that they do think of themselves as being Christian. But biblical counselling isn't as narrow as that because, because I believe that we're created by God to live with God, with each other and in the world. So we'd be, So I would say that God made us in his image. So there are qualities and aspects of us as human beings which reflect God. 
So whether a person believes in God or not, I find that I'm still able to help them, even though without necessarily using biblical terms or bringing Jesus into it, if I can help someone essentially become a better person within their own framework of thinking, then, then I'm happy. And I find that I can do that. So you don't have to be explicit about biblical terms or refer to um, Jesus or God with your clients. But you use the Bible and your faith and your, um, your background to guide them nonetheless. Uh, sorry, my computer's just done something weird. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Yeah, okay, sorry. Um, can you just <laughs> run through that question again? Sorry, I had a technological failure. <laughs> no, I was just summarising what you were saying, as in you don't explicitly um, articulate or express, you know. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I've got my train of thought. Yes, thank you. So... Ten Commandments. Um, the Ten Commandments are summarized, like Jesus said. The summary of the law is love God, love your neighbor. Mm. So, in other words, I should treat you as I want you to treat me. Most people would agree with that. So, if I can help a husband love his wife and his children better. Mm. I feel I can do that without necessarily referencing uh, Jesus. So, for example, uh, a, a historical forefather of, of the Protestant church, Martin Luther, mm-hmm. he said to be a Christian cobbler to make shoes, you don't have to put a cross on the shoes that you're making, Mm. just make good shoes. Yeah, I like that. I really like that. I'm making a mental note of it and drawing a shoe right now. Oh, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to Science of the Soul. This is a short interruption to let you know that if you or someone you know are in need of more support, you can find me at Road to Recovery on my Facebook page, my Instagram, or my website at aroadtorecovery.org. I hope you've enjoyed listening so far, and now let's get back to the podcast. So... Earlier today, when we were speaking, before we started recording, you showed me a book called The Question of Lay Analysis um, by Sigmund Freud. And you said that in the book, um, psychotherapists are considered secular pastors. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed reading this book written by Sigmund Freud. He was arguing that in his day, psychotherapists, the the body that was looking after this whole 
aspect of psychotherapy, they were saying that you had to be a medical doctor to practice um, psychotherapy or talking therapies. And so he argued against that and he, he liked this idea of he thought of himself as a secular pastor, someone that would walk alongside a person, get to know that person and try to get to, I guess, the root or the like the core of their problem rather than looking at symptoms and trying to diagnose mm. a solution or, 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 you know, or, you know, like we have, you know, prescribed medicine or prescribed something that will fix it. He, I think what I appreciate about Freud is he, he did understand that there were, that the human heart was quite a deep and dark place Mm -hmm. and that a lot of our problems do come from that place. And I think he didn't want to get sidetracked from with symptoms and try to fix those symptoms. Mm. He wanted to get to the heart of the issue. Now, I don't necessarily agree with how, like some of his theories, but I really do appreciate that he understood. And and I, some of us would say that he had a pretty dark, depressing view of humanity, but I, th- I don't think he's far off. We are pretty dark. We can be very dark. Mm. Um, you don't have to look very far to, I mean, you look at the, the rate of domestic violence in Australia, for example. Yeah. It's, it's really disheartening to find that two people that fell in love, hopefully they did, that's why they're together, could get to a place where, wow, they're treating each other so badly. Mm. So, hmm. Yeah, the things that happen behind those doors. Um, and I, I guess one thing I do appreciate about being in Australia is that we are, well, this country is very open and very vocal about this, about DV assistance and DV crisis. There's so much support here and there's so much education. I think it, the education around violence can you know, stretch further. There is a lot more we can do, um, mm. but but it's definitely a lot more than what where I'm from, um, where these things are just phenomenally taboo and stigmatized, and sometimes yeah. even thought of as um, something that they would deserve because they have sinned, um, and so the abuse or the violence that they're receiving is, you know, it's their fault. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of yeah, justified. Yeah, there's a lot of gaslighting happening there as well. But um, that's a really deep topic, which maybe maybe it's not for today. <laughs> yeah, um, that's fair enough. That's fair yeah. enough. <clears throat> but but I but what you t- what you talked about um, about how Sigmund Freud. Um, recognizes and acknowledges that the human being is, you know, it's complex and how in psychotherapy, we kind of 
walk with the client to somehow vicariously experience what they're experiencing with a fresh lens, um, but not objectify them as a subject that has problems. We're not trying to pathologize. We have a lot of respect for the human being, the person. Um, and likewise, you know, everyone has their blind spots. That's why um, therapists also have their own supervisors and, and, and such. So acknowledging mm -hmm. that there is always wisdom that we can't see. That's somehow somewhere. And it always helps when someone is there with you to look at whatever it is that you, you want to improve, but also, you know, help you think outside the, the box. Like, have you thought about that? And what does that person think about, you know? Um, how is this person affected? Um, it, it gives it gives a larger picture, an appreciation of a larger picture for um, the person seeking assistance, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think for me, uh, part of my role as a biblical counsellor is to, I often find that people will have come to a place in their lives and their thinking and their feeling towards God that I work towards helping to rectify. So they may have come to think that God is disappointed in them or judging them or punishing them or disciplining them or has certain expectations of them, mm. which I don't actually think is true. Mm. And so part of my walk with, with people is, is to explore that, um, is to explore that they may not have the right picture of God and how, and how God actually sees them. Um, because I find, I've found in my relationship with God that he, he, he has been more faithful to me than I have been faithful to him. What and do you mean faithful? I, I think that, I think that what we don't really appreciate about God is, is that he, he's very, um, he's grounded, he's very uh, stable in his love. Like it doesn't, his love doesn't depend on me, my love to him. His love is so constant. Yeah. And so he, so, so he's, he is, his love is faithful to me even when I stray away from him or disappoint him or, or deliberately break, like even within myself, mm. you know, like I disappoint myself, like I have codes of conduct for my own self and then I'll think back and like, did I just do that or say that? I can't believe I did that. I'm, I'm even disappointing my own standards, let alone God's. Mm. And yet I find that God... Ten, he he does move towards me with compassion and understanding. There's some fantastic um, what we call psalms in the Old Testament. They're, they're poems, they're prayers, they're songs that, that the Israelites sang and do sing. <laughs> 
And there's this one psalm in particular, Psalm 77, that I've lived out of for a long time. And Psalm 77, like, you would be really surprised that it's even in the Bible because there there are a couple of verses I I can read them for you. Um, He says, uh, so he says things like, Uh, so he says, I remembered God and you're thinking, oh, good. He's remembering God. He's going to feel encouraged. But he says, I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. And he says of God, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. And then he says, will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favourable no more? Has his mercies ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? It's like this is in the Bible. I can say this. Yeah. I can pray this. This is how I feel. It captures. So when we talked about my first church and how it went terribly wrong. Mm. This was a, this, you asked me how I got through it. This was, this is, this Psalm 77 is one of the reasons why I got through it because it tells me that God gives me the space to express my own doubt in him because my circumstances were, were felt crushing. Yeah. And so I was able to, this Psalm helped me cry out to God Sometimes I, I like to think of it as like bleeding, like bleeding Godwoods. Like, and I know that we, we spoke a little bit about grief before we started recording, but I, I just want to throw this thought out to you and I'd like to see what you think about this. Mm-hmm. I actually believe that grieving in a Godwood way like this psalm is an act of worship. Mm. So we often think of worship, you think of people in a church or or you think of um, you think of uh, like Muslims praying, you know, the five times when the, when they pray their prayer. A you think of, of worship, a lot of praise. Yeah, absolutely. Praise. It's and it's you know connected with joy or duty, commitment. But w- we can we can hurt Godwoods. Like if we're hurting in a like in God's direction, then it's good. Mm. And and that as a biblical counselor, sometimes that's what I try to help people realize that rather than going around their grief under it or over it or ignoring it, there is a way through it. Mm. And they don't have to do it on their own. Jesus can help them. Mm. I mean, Jesus was called a man of sorrows. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm. That's how he was described. And Mm. I think that these prayers, songs, these psalms help certainly helped me 
Mm. Understand that God's faithfulness is more faithful than my faithfulness or unfaithfulness. <laughs> That's what it means. So mm. getting through the grief um, by embrace is in a way through the Psalms would be embracing the grief, acknowledging it. You know, the reason why it's there is probably because it's acknowledging the fact that, you know, doubt and misery is part of the human condition. It's part of the human mind and emotion. It happens from time to time. It can happen from time to time. And to get through that grief, you don't have to do it alone because Jesus is the man of sorrows and he will walk that path with you. And it might be awful. It might take a really long time, but you're not alone. So this, that this, there's a sense of accompaniment and almost like camaraderie, like, you know, you don't have to do this on your own. Um, have some faith because we know what, well, you know, God knows, or Jesus knows. Um, we know that, this is part of being human. Mm-hmm. And that's why the yeah. song is there. Um, cool. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And and if you if you don't mind, mm. um, maybe some people listening to the podcast, uh, this is a question that I've been asked quite a few times is, you know, if God is good, then why does he allow such mm. significant suffering in the world? It's a fantastic question, and I can't answer that question. Mm. Having just posed it, I don't want to. I don't want to be so trite as to say that somehow, you know, Chris has got the answer to suffering. But one of the ways that I like to think about that question or that issue is that the world isn't finished. Like God created it, and it was good, Mm. and then humanity broke it and introduced evil and death into it and since that time god has put a put a plan in place mm. and jesus is the center of that plan that he lived a good and righteous obedient life to his heavenly father he died an unjust death mm. on our behalf mm. to take upon the punishment that i should bear upon himself mm. and he died and then he conquered death and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and so this what we experience at the moment is not the finished product Mm. so as a christian and someone that tries to live as a disciple of christ i'm looking forward to when one day jesus will return and execute both healing and justice Mm. So he'll bring healing to the broken and justice as well. So there, so there, it, it's not the end. And so I, I know that you're interested in philosophy and and the deeper issues of life. And so I think one of the one of the aspects of mental health that in the Western world people struggle, like people who are secular in their thinking. So they they don't like the idea of a God or a higher being in their lives. And, and I respect that. I'm not denigrating that. But if, if you don't have a bigger narrative that you fit into, then your suffering and your pain, what does it mean? 
And it's just pain and it has no meaning or purpose. It, yeah. it, 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 and, and so it's your problem and your problem alone. And I find that really isolating. And how, where do you get your sense of hope outside of yourself? Um, where the world religions, part of their existence is, is about trying to understand evil and suffering in the world, whether it's Buddhism or the Islamic faith or Christian faith or, or, or Hindu, it, it gives a context in which we understand ourselves and understand our experience both of pleasure and pain. But mm. without that, then you're on your own and it has no significance at all. Mm. So I, I find that, I find that, um, I, I find that, that that would be a real struggle for me if I didn't have that framework where, look, I can't explain suffering specifically. I don't understand why it's happening in my life in this way, but I have an overall hope that somehow it will get sorted. Yeah. And, and I look to God to help me um, hurt in a way that is good um or mm. god would mm. and 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 yeah so i don't know what what do you think about that well firstly i really enjoyed that train of thought um in terms of suffering i think i think it's necessary to an extent to have some sort of framework or understanding of how the world works and in terms of giving us hope um you know things like the judgment day uh, or when jesus returns like that 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 gives hope to the helpless of the helpless of the hopeless of within us and um and hope is one thing that people hold on to you know it's one thing that stops you from offing yourself and when you, like what, what you described, that really sterile uh, mentality of the lack of meaning and purpose. And maybe I'll share this as well. When I was working in university, I was um, a counselor for the university students for a brief period of time. And I kind of got worn out um, as, a, as a counselor because a lot of the cases that was presented to me or that presented um, was around that. It was an existential crisis, this, this dark, dread, meaninglessness of going through the motions but not knowing what it's about. And then this depression and anxiety, which I think is existential, you know, like, um, because if everything is black and white and you know you eat you sleep you wake up you exercise you go to school and all that if there's no reason why you're doing any of these things if there's no passion there's no hope there's no greater purpose then you might find yourself going down that path and i i think we we i think it's normal that we go down that path from time to time you know when when things get really rough and um, I'm, I'm not sure if you read Victor Frankl's um, Man's Search for Meaning. No, I haven't. Oh my God, you have to, you have to read it. Um, okay. 
it's, <laughs> it's big. It's yeah, like, mm-hmm. in like a day or two, but it's pretty powerful. Okay. He's a psychiatrist um, that was in, in um, the concentration camps, and he lost his whole family, his wife, and everyone. And he wrote about what he kept writing in there. Um, he hid his work, but he wrote about what kept him going. What was the meaning of life? And then he came out and became this um, profound psychotherapist but um in terms of suffering i think that suffering on a personal level is necessary for growth and also on a macro level it's necessary for growth like if you see post-traumatic stress disorder like ptsd that is one way that you know um somebody can respond to responds to can it's like it's a choice sorry <laughs> one way that somebody responds to trauma um is to have a PTSD or um, post-traumatic symptoms, um, which might, you know, go on for a while, but then it might subside or, you know, and then when it does subside, there's post-traumatic growth and that only happens through suffering. Um, So I think that just the idea of suffering itself is, you know, there's some element of growth and some lessons that we have to learn because sometimes we make the same sort of mistakes and we just, don't know why this keeps happening to us. Um, or like, for example, why we keep getting into abusive relationships or why we can't like stop, I don't know, binge eating or something like that. We have not learned that lesson. And so we suffering from the consequences. But then when it comes to like unnecessary suffering with like evil, I think that's what you were talking about. Um, that's when yeah. you know justice and hope is something that you just otherwise you lose hope in humanity um, mm. but I'm I wanted to ask you what is your understanding of yin and yang can the good only goodness in the world survive or exist does that is that possible mm-hmm. um, without yeah. you know some chaos Okay, so, uh, well, I, I don't really hold to a yin and yang because a yin and yang is the idea of, like, e- an equal, like, the equality of both good and bad or good and evil. There's a sort of, like, an equality between those two ideas. Mm-hmm. Um. I believe that God is infinite and God is love Mm -hmm. and evil is something that came about through um, essentially someone that God created, like a creature. So there isn't like that kind of equality between good and evil. I think that I think so my, my, my frame of like, I think that, when you do bad things or evil things or wrong things, or when you break the commandments, there are consequences. So you could see that as type, you know, like karma type of idea. Mm-hmm. I understand that, but I don't really, I don't really, I'm not really, I don't hold to the idea of yin and yang and karma. Cause I think grace, uh, you too, Bono wrote a fantastic song called grace and he, he talks about 
in that song, grace operating outside of karma, that grace is so much richer and deeper. God's love is so much more powerful, I think, than the evil in the world. Mm. And he's and he and there's this wonderful verse in the Bible where essentially God promises to use everything for um, for my good. Like even the so if you think about the 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 death and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which is probably the worst act of evil in all the world. The Bible describes that in, in that way, but at the same time that it was actually something that God planned. And so God is able to use the worst act for the greatest good. So there's not a quality between good and evil. Good far outweighs evil in my mind and my belief system. Mm. And that gives me a lot of hope because it's not, it's not a struggle between equal forces. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks. The victory is already been the victory is already been won. Right. It's just that we're we're waiting for we 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 are yet to catch up to that. Hmm. Mm. So we skipped ahead somehow. But when you said the word victory, what? that implies that there was a conflict what was that mm-hmm. absolutely that you're referring to? so the co- yeah absolutely so there's a so one of the categories that uh, as a biblical counselor one of the categories that i think in terms and sometimes we'll discuss with someone that i'm walking with is a kingdom category so mostly in the western world in secular world it's all the medical model. You have an illness, you have a prognosis, and then you have, um, you know, a prescription to get better. But one of the biblical categories is kingdoms. And so there's the kingdom of light and there's the kingdom of darkness. And so there's a conflict that's, uh, that's being waged. And it's essentially a conflict that, is about winning people's hearts where, you know, are they, in, are they in God's kingdom or are they in the kingdom of darkness? And so that's the, that's the major conflict that the Bible talks about. Mm-hmm. And that conflict was resolved when Christ died and rose from the dead so that anyone who believes in him is is transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom of light by faith, not by what they do, but mm. by grace so that no one can boast. So, so that, so that conflict. So, so I am judged not guilty, even though I am guilty and I deserve punishment because Christ has taken my guilt on himself and paid the penalty and then he gives me his good works that I'm only able to do for myself. So it's like I'm in debt. Oh, sorry. sorry. Oh, just, you go. So sorry. Um, who came up with that arrangement? How did, did it come about that with Christ's death, mm-hmm. everyone else's sins from then on till forever after is being atoned? 
because it's coming mm-hmm. back anyways. So like yes, that's right. Happen. Sorry, this is like a non-Christian no, question. That's posed from yeah by a non-Christian. <laughs> it it's all right. Um, so it was always God's plan. So I think the whole like the whole Bible story in a nutshell is God created mankind and and the world and it was good. And then they rebelled against God because they wanted to make their own decisions. They wanted to live how they wanted to live. They wanted to live autonomously and independently of God. They wanted to make their own choices. They wanted to be free. It sounds familiar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so once they did that, they were cast out of God's physical presence. And God instituted a plan. He promised that one day someone would come and, mm-hmm. um, and overcome evil once and for all for mankind. And so the whole of the Old Testament, so you've got the people and, and they're always falling away from God and, and falling away from him and breaking his commandments. And, and there are references in the Old Testament where it, it gets to a point where there's a reference that talks about how our hearts are like stone and God has, God's going to have to give us hearts of flesh. And then we, when we come into the New Testament, Jesus has this encounter with a religious leader and they have this really long discussion. And Jesus explains that to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, you have to be born again spiritually. And this is like really blows this religious leader's mind. It's in John 4. Mm-hmm. And, and Jesus explains that it's a spiritual rebirth that has to happen. God has to do this. Otherwise, we've got these stony hearts that are never going to want to love God or, or love our neighbour as the way we're created to be and do. And so Christ comes and lives the life in a way that we don't live. Like he'd never, he never broke one of God's commandments. He kept all of the commandments. And so he, so the wages of sin is death. That's a quote from the Bible. So in other words, if you break the commandment, you're going to die. Jesus didn't break the commandments. So he could have chosen to live forever. Okay. But because he died, he, because he died an innocent person so that we can get to heaven. Okay. And in order to do that, you have to alliance yourself with Christ by believing. Yeah. Yep. Correct. Yep. So, so, so in putting my faith in him, that's Mm. how I am saved. So, so to think of it this way, a lot of world religions to get to their God or to, to get to their um, Nirvana or heaven, however you want to phrase that, you have to work towards that. You have to be, you have to follow steps. You have to keep rules. You have to become a certain person. The difference with the Protestant faith, Christian faith, is that I'm saved for good works. I'm not, I don't do good works to be saved. I do good works because I am saved, because I want to, because I've had that inner change. I've been born again inside myself, a spiritual renewal. Um, And so that I would say that what propels me in my life 
is the love of Christ. Mm. Because of the love of Christ, I have grown to love my neighbour. You know, I, for the first time in my life, I've asked this question so many times. This is the first time I got it. Like I understood. Like, and I've asked this question so many times. You have no idea. <laughs> well, I'm really glad to hear that. That's awesome. So <laughs> you, um, yeah, and like say maybe, you know, the majority of us, we are motivated to do something positive, something good. Um, sometimes our intentions are fraught with other selfish gains. Like for example, I never really could, even as a child, um, reconcile the, the idea that I'm doing this good thing because my parents said that I'll get a sadaka or a blessing or reward in in Jannah, in heaven. So I'm get it's it's like I have you know a bank account, and I'm just like, why can't I just do this because I just want to do this, you know, out of compassion, out of empathy, mm. or interest, or curiosity, whatever. Um, but they're always mm. like, you know, going to school, going to you know, uh, traveling to learn something, you get a reward for every step. I'm just like, why are people counting rewards? I don't get it. <laughs> like, shouldn't you be yeah. doing good for the sake of doing good? Um, so whenever I I'm, I hear something like that, I'm not. Maybe there's a deeper, you know, philosophical understanding that I'm completely missing. But as from a child till now, I never really understood that, and I. And I acknowledge the fact that you said our intentions, our good intentions of altruism or whatnot are sometimes fraught with something else, um, we, which we can't always control. So it makes a lot of sense that now that if you are, you know, a blank slate, the whole tabula rasa thing spiritually, you have the choice to do all the good things you want to do and the bad things too, but the bad things won't be credited to you as something that you will have to. Yep. Um, exactly. Yeah. So I don't. I don't have. I don't have any fear at all. What free about That's my liberating concept? Yeah. Hi everyone. Thank you for tuning in so far. As you can probably tell, Padre Chris Perona and myself, we are both extremely engaged in these topics. So as you know, you can't really anticipate how a conversation will unfurl. Um, but if you're keen to keep listening, please tune into the next episode for part two.